0: Would you open your Bible, please, to uh, Revelation chapter 3, and uh, we'll open uh, in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Uh, Father, I do thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that you've spoken, and it's been uh, written down for us. Uh, We thank you for the book uh, of Revelation, and uh, for the opportunity that we have to to work through it. And uh, Lord, I do uh, ask that uh, the Holy Spirit would help us tonight. As we study uh, this portion of scripture, please grant to us uh, the gift of illumination. Uh, We we need that to understand what's written before us. And uh, please grant to us uh, the the grace to apply uh, the message you have for us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Looks can be deceiving. Have you ever been deceived because something looked really good... But really, it wasn't good. And maybe it was something as small as a piece of fruit. Uh, it looked delicious. Like if you entered it into a competition, it would win first prize. You're bursting with enthusiasm to eat it, but so you take your first bite, all your hopes and dreams are shattered. It was disgusting. It looked amazing, but it tasted gross. You know, I remember growing up, we went on a family holiday, and uh, the place that was advertised uh, looked incredible in the advertising material. It got posted to us, probably goes to show how old I'm starting to get. But upon arrival, it became very apparent that surely this couldn't be the same place. It was nothing like what was advertised. It looked amazing, but it wasn't. Maybe you've experienced this at work. In the initial interview to go into this new workplace, uh, it seems very promising. It looks like your dream job. The team seemed friendly. The boss seems lovely. Work-life balance is emphasized. seems that that's important to the boss. You think, wow, the work conditions, they look great. But after a month, you realize it was a facade. What looked so wonderful turned out to be horrible. Looks can be deceiving. And this is also true in the church. Churches can externally look very impressive, but there's little to no life. And other churches may look very unimpressive and yet be incredibly healthy and vibrant. It's possible for a church to be well-known For it to have a respected name, for it to have a long and decorated history, but to be dying in the presence. It's also possible for a church to exist in obscurity. For it to be quite not well known. And for man to not think that highly of it, and yet that church be thriving. Looks can be deceiving. And this is very evident with the churches at Sardis and Philadelphia, the fifth and sixth churches addressed. One is healthy and one is almost dead. But if these churches were evaluated by man, it's highly likely that the majority would fail to identify correctly which of these churches was dead. Because looks can be deceiving. So let's examine what Jesus has to say about these two churches and determine the message they contain for us at Condal Park Bible Church. So firstly, let's consider Sardis, the church in crisis. It's fascinating with this particular church, how it actually mirrored the city and culture in which it resided in a multitude of ways. Osiris was a city built 1,500 feet above the valley of Hermes. Its location made it virtually impregnable. It could only be accessed from one side, and it was surrounded by cliff faces with vertical drops on the other three sides. And this gave them a real sense of security that they shouldn't have ever been captured. But it was conquered twice in its history. The city was known for its worship of Artemis, but there was one particular religious activity that made this city famous. It contained hot springs not far from the city, and at this particular location, it was where their gods would supposedly give life to the dead, which is ironic because this church was dead. The city of Sardis was also famous for hundreds of burial mounds that dotted its landscape. And there were many former kings buried there. And again, that's dripping with irony. And the thing with the city of Sardis when John wrote was that it was on the decline. This city was not what it once was. It used to be one of the most influential and affluent cities. It had been one of the greatest cities of this part of the world. But that was no longer the case. The city was declining. They were now only a shadow of their previous glory. That's the condition of the city. And what's very interesting is that the church mirrored that condition. Notice the verdict Jesus gives of this church. He's referred to in verse 1 as he that hath the seven spirits of God, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and the seven stars, referring to the elders. And again, this is phraseology borrowed from Revelation chapter 1. And he makes the declaration that he knows their works. Jesus says that about all seven of the churches. And it seems likely that this church... Would have expected Jesus to speak positively of them. They, they likely assumed that a glowing commendation was about to flow. Okay, that they're ready to pack themselves on the back, pump up their egos. But they were left bitterly disappointed. Because the Lord Jesus, with his omniscient gaze, sees straight through the external facade. And I want you to notice that he offers no commendation, that there is no congratulations. There is nothing positive to be said. And he gets straight to the heart of the issue. There's no beating around the bush. Verse 1, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Looks can be deceiving. This church, they had a reputation of activity and vitality they had a good name everyone seemed to know about this church it seems they were a church of size with money with influence today we would say they have wonderful buildings great programs charismatic leaders quality worship team it appeared to be a place of life but that was not true they were not living they with dead and it seems likely that previously this church had been genuine there had been a day when there was life and vitality when the lord was working but this was no longer the case and they were stuck in the past they're dwelling on the achievements of yesteryear this church had a reputation of past faithfulness or past accomplishments And even now, okay, things still looked impressive, but truth be told, this church was dying. And as I thought about that, isn't that alarming? That things are not always what they seem. And this particular church was trading on its reputation. Others thought it was healthy and strong due to its past. But this church was not what it once was. Like the city itself, it was decaying. It was stark living in the past. And truth be told, this church was ready to be buried in the famous cemetery of their city, along with the dead kings. And this was the verdict of Jesus. This church lacked spiritual life and power. It lacked spiritual health and vitality. Sure, externally it may have looked okay. Sure, in the past great things were accomplished, but in the presence, it was lifeless. This church had become like a museum. Stuffed animals are exhibited in their natural habitats of the past. Everything appears to be normal, but nothing is alive. This was Jesus' assessment of this local assembly. And you would assume the mood would have been quite dismal as this was read out to the congregation. You know, imagine if there was a letter from Jesus here and Church of Conrad Park, you're dead. Like, oh man, that's not very good news to hear. But it continues. Okay, Jesus, the great doctor, he's ran the scans on this church. The so diagnosis is damning, but with Jesus, that there is still hope. Because Jesus is in the resurrection business, he's able to breathe life into dead churches. The condition of Sardis, it was critical, but there was still some hope. And Jesus unleashes what is a barrage of commandments. And they form the steps that this church needed to take. This was the prescription issued to overcome the disease that was killing them. And it's revealed in verses 2 and 3. So point one, he tells them, be watchful. In other words, wake up. Snap out of your slumber. Now it's interesting, historically, Sardis had been conquered twice because of military slothfulness. They had failed to keep watch. And this church needed to learn from its own history. Okay, it was not too late to awaken from its spiritual slumber, that there was still a slither of life. But they needed to wake up. They needed to stop dwelling in the past. They needed to be alert, vigilant, and awake in the present. That's step one. Step two, we're told, strengthen what remains. The little that remained in the church needed to be built up before it died. It needed to be spiritually strengthened. Now, Spiritual strength is produced when we get into the spiritual gym and we perform the basic exercises. Read the Bible and pray. It's here where it starts. And for them, it also includes removing bad practices such as false doctrine, unbiblical practices, meaningless activity. That would certainly help to strengthen them. Then step three, they're told remember what was received and heard and hold on to it. They needed to remember and embrace the gospel. Okay, they'd forgotten the gospel. Okay, we would say today, you know, they needed to preach the gospel to themselves every day. That they needed to be constantly reminded of Christ and the cross. As we reflected this morning, we are prone to forget. And they're told to Hold it. Guard it. Don't let go. The gospel is a precious treasure that's never to be taken for granted. So that was step three. And then step four, repent. Repent. They needed to acknowledge and turn from their sin. When we speak of repentance, we mean a change of mind resulting in a change of attitude, action and purpose. Now we need to understand that repentance is not only required for conversion. It's true. You will not be saved if you don't repent of your sin. But repentance is to be a consistent companion of the Christian. We're to live a life of repentance. And it seems that the church at Sardis had neglected the the necessity of repentance. And they needed to repent in order to not die out. So this is what they needed to do in order to get back to a healthy state. This is the divine prescription. And Jesus was very clear in verse 3, if they ignored him, if they failed to watch, Jesus would judge. He would be like a thief in the night. And this is referencing particular judgment on this local church. So the stakes are very high. If they continued in this state, Jesus would ensure that their doors would be closed for good. And hence it was vital to pay attention and follow the health plan developed by Jesus, particularly for those referenced in verse 4. There there was still a small remnant in this church, a small remnant who had not defiled their garments So, in other words, they remained unspotted from both false doctrine and wicked conduct. And This is actually a constant theme throughout Scripture. A remnant remaining. Often it's small, but it's there. And it was vital that they listened to what Jesus had said to ensure that the church didn't cease to exist. And for the one who listens to this instruction from Jesus, the one who overcomes, the one who continues on, perseverance, Okay, that's evidence of saving faith. Jesus makes some promises to the overcomer. Okay, the first promise we read here is they will be clothed in white raiments. This is seen in verse 4. This is speaking of the righteousness of Christ. The garment of salvation. The genuine believer is clothed in Christ's righteousness. So in, in the gospel, when we talk about this, we talk about the great gospel exchange So it's my robes, my sinful putrid garments, they were given to Christ. He dealt with that at the cross and now we're clothed in his righteousness. The second promise, never be removed from the book of life. This is verse five. Now we need to understand that this is not a threat, but it's a promise. It doesn't imply that names can be removed. This is not speaking of loss of salvation, but it's actually a word about security. The idea is if your name is in the book of life, it won't be removed. And understand in John's day, a ruler would keep a list of the citizens of the city. And if someone died or if someone committed a serious crime, their name would be erased from that list. But Christ, the king of heaven, promises to never erase a Christian's name from the role. That's what this is talking about. But it leads to a very important question. How do I know my name is in the book of life? Because later in Revelation, we learn that if your name is not in the book of life, you'll be cast into the lake of fire. Hence the question. How do I know my name is in the book of life? Okay, well, every Christian is in the book of life. Okay, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means that you have repented of your sin. Lord, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. And you turn from your sin and you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, believing that he is God and believing that he died on the cross in my place. And that alone is sufficient to save me it's believing in his death and then it's believing that he rose again on the third day that my friend is how you become a christian and then you can know for sure you are in the book of life and if your name's there it won't be removed it's the second promise the third promise jesus will declare believers names okay this is verse five so jesus will acknowledge names And that is significant because it's identifying them as belonging to him. So Jesus will affirm that believers belong to him. And these promises are actually seen later in the book of Revelation. And these gracious promises are to motivate the Christian to continue to live for Christ in the present. As one writer put it, these promises should move us, motivate us and compel us. Out of grace, gratitude, I like that phrase, to complete our works, bear our witness, stay clean, and pursue purity that reflects the transforming work of Christ. That is the impact that these promises were meant to have on the small remnant in Sardis. So they did not follow the path of the rest of the church. So the church at Sardis issues a very sobering warning. It's possible for a church to look alive, but be dead. And when we think about that, we, we shouldn't just instantly think of others. Well, hey, that's what must happen to that church down the streets. Okay. It's possible for our church. Okay. It's, it's possible for Condal Park. For us as a church corporately... And for us as individuals. We can be like this church. It's artists. Now what are some signs of a church that was once alive and vibrant. But now in the grave or at least fastly approaching the grave. Well one article entitled the autopsy of a deceased church. Identifies several causes that put once alive and vibrant churches in the grave. Okay, and these are on your outline sheet. Treating the past as the hero. Refusing to adapt to the needs of the present community. Moving the focus of the budget inward. Allowing the Great Commission to become the Great Omission. Letting the church become preference driven out of selfishness and personal agendas. Seeing the tenure of the past as decreasing. Failing to have regular corporate prayer, having no clear purpose or vision, and obsessing over the facilities. Now, another writer highlights six telltale signs a church is standing at death's door. He says one, the church is plagued with disagreements, two, the preaching is ineffective, three, few can remember when a person was last saved, four, God's supernatural power is never seen. Five, God is not praised regularly. And six, no one is being called into God's work. So here are some symptoms that we need to look out for in our church. And we also need to be looking out for them in our own lives. Because it could be a sign that we have this disease. And we don't want to be that church Okay, that that church that that may well have an impressive name, may have done great things historically, but in the present, we're, we're dying. We don't want to be that. And, you know, there's no point being stuck in the past because that's only going to send us to the grave. And we don't want to give off this persona of life, but really, we're dead. And here's the thing. For a church to die, it means the individual members have died. Can you see that logic? If the church is dead, it means the individual members are dead. And hence we need to be guarding our own hearts as individuals and ensure that we aren't dying spiritually. Ensure that we as individuals are not succumbing to the telltale signs of heading to the grave. Like treating our church history as the hero, like neglecting corporate prayer, like ignoring the Great Commission. Because as we do these things as individuals, understand this, we're sending our church corporately to the grave. We all have a role to play to ensure that we as a church are not dead. And please understand, we are not immune to this danger. This is the message from Sardis. The second letter that we're considering tonight and the sixth letter is to the church at Philadelphia. I've entitled this church, the Committed Church. Now, this church was the complete opposite to Sardis. It didn't look impressive, it didn't have the largest congregation, it didn't have the greatest building didn't have the best ministry programs. It didn't have the most charismatic leaders. Externally, it didn't look as impressive. But Jesus spoke glowingly of this church. He was full of praise. He noticed that the usual criticism was absent. Because this church was thriving. May not have looked impressive, but it was thriving. Looks can certainly be deceiving. Now, Philadelphia was the youngest of the seven cities. It was actually built on a volcanic mountain range that made it incredibly fertile, but it also meant earthquakes. And the citizens lived quite an unsettled life. Now, why would you build here? Why would you build on a mountain range that was volcanic? Well, it was built here because this was a strategic location. And this city was built for a specific purpose. And this is really important. It was originally founded as a missionary city, not for Christianity, but for Greek culture. It was purpose built to be the center for spreading Greek language, culture and customs throughout the regions and beyond. And it was actually very successful because what's our New Testament written in Greek? Okay, so they played a role in the spread of this culture. And this was the city where the sixth church addressed by Jesus was located. Now Jesus begins this letter with a threefold description of himself in verse 7. Says, He that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. So Jesus is holy. This implies a number of things. It implies deity. It implies that he's completely set apart and he's free from any taints of sin. Jesus is also true. This stresses reliability and trustworthiness. Jesus is reliable. Jesus is trustworthy. Why? Because he is the truth. And he has the key of David. Now, what's that talking about? Well, key that the word key throughout the Bible Often stresses authority and power. And the key of David is found in Isaiah 22. And there it spoke of Eliakim, and he was given authority over the king's house and treasury. So the idea here is that Jesus alone has the authority to include or exclude from his kingdom. He is the Davidic Messiah with the absolute power and authority to control entrance into his kingdom. And this is encapsulated in the final phrase of verse 7. So if he opens, no one can shut. If he shuts, no one can open. This is Jesus. He then makes the familiar remark, verse 8 I know thy works. But notice here, there's no criticism, there's no critique. Now, this doesn't mean they were perfect. We know there's no such thing as a perfect church. And as the saying goes, if you find it, don't go there. You'll ruin it. But the idea here is that there was nothing serious enough that needed to be confronted by Christ. And that says a lot about the quality of this church. It was one that pleased Jesus. Jesus goes on to commend three things about this church. This is in verse eight. Number one. They had little strength. Now we need to understand, this is not a criticism. It's not, you guys are a bunch of weaklings. That's not the point. The idea here is that although they were not large, they were not wealthy, that they didn't have the influence and stature in society. They were looked down upon. They were persecuted. They didn't have the most resources. That They weren't that impressive. But... They were faithful and they were dedicated to living for the Lord and serving him. That's what's encapsulated in this term. The second thing Jesus commends, they kept God's word. In other words, they were obedient. They endeavored to follow the scriptures and remember that they were pressured. They were persecuted, but they remained faithful and obedient. The third thing that's commended, they didn't deny Jesus' name. Despite the great cost to follow Christ, they never walked away. They lived for him. They strived to be like him. They lived in a way that was faithful to the name and character of Jesus. They loved him supremely. And since the church was like this, a promise is made in verse 8 says, Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. There are two primary interpretations of this phrase. Okay, One says that it's an open door into the kingdom of God. So this ensures that they would enter heaven. The other interpretation says this is speaking of an open door for success in missions and evangelism. And this particular view harmonizes with the function of the city. Remember what I said before, this city was purpose-built to be a missionary city, but it was Greek culture. So now Jesus says, hey, it's going to be used for the spread of the gospel. So, So there's that connection with the city. But more importantly, a similar phrase occurs in other places throughout the New Testament, and there it speaks of an opportunity for ministry. Here are three examples. Okay, Acts 14:27 says and when they were come and had gathered the church together they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the gentiles. Okay, so missions missions movement. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2:12. Furthermore when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. Again, it's preaching the gospel, open door. Colossians 4.3 With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds. Okay, so, so in light of how that is used elsewhere, that's how I believe it's best to interpret the phrase here. And this is the sense in context. Christ encouraged the church in Philadelphia with opportunities for ministry in the midst of their trials. Okay, due to their location, due to the purpose of the city, it gave them wonderful evangelistic and missionary opportunities. And Jesus ensured them that this would not be taken from them. Nothing could shut this door, okay, it, it was open. Not even Satan could close it. And no doubt this church, although it didn't look impressive to others, it ended up having a tremendous impact because of this open door. They made the most of it because the church was mission-minded, as will any healthy church. A healthy church will be mission-minded. You know, One writer said this, the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. Okay, a healthy church will be concerned about the Great Commission. But Jesus not only promised them an open door, he also promised to work amongst those who were persecuting them. Okay, in verse 9, again, we come across the synagogue of Satan. Okay, those who were, okay, were Jews. Okay, Jews by birth, but not believers. And they were the chief antagonists in this city. And Jesus promises that they will worship before their feet. Now, there are a couple of different ways we can understand this. But I take it to mean that in their gospel endeavors, they will be blessed with seeing some of their worst antagonists coming to Christ as Savior. But there could also be some eschatological overtones as well. Now, Jesus continues with the promise of reward in verse 10. He says, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. There's a little bit of debate about this phrase, but I believe it's talking about sparing the church from the tribulation period. And where the debate heats up is whether this means the church is taken from the world or whether it's just protected in the world during the tribulation period. That's where the debate lies. Now the Greek preposition that's used here, it actually means out of. And a different preposition could have been used if it meant to protect through the trial. Okay, There's a Greek preposition that means that, means through. But the preposition used, it's ek. Which means out of. And furthermore, there's no mention of the church in the tribulation period. You'll notice this once we get to chapter 5, you don't hear about the church. And it's also interesting that those who come to Christ during the tribulation are certainly not protected. We will also see that as we work our way through the book of Revelation. So it's best to view this as a promise for the church to be removed before the great tribulation period and that is a comfort now the promises of jesus continue he seems to give this church more and more promises he says in verse 11 he is coming quickly that means suddenly unexpectedly not necessarily immediately so this is speaking of the imminent return of christ jesus could come back at any time and this is the motive for them and for us to continue on, Jesus could come back tonight. Are we ready for that? And then he says in verse 11, he mentions the crown. Okay, likely the crown of life. That, that's awaiting at the finish line. So the idea is there's a prize. Keep going. Stay with it. Be strong. And this particular theme continues into verse 12. You know, the overcomer will be a pillar in the temple. And we need to understand that a pillar was often what was remaining after a building was destroyed, especially in an earthquake. So think of Philadelphia. When it's destroyed by an earthquake, usually what's left are the pillars. And that seems to be the image in mind. And then it combines the idea of a pillar with the phrase, he shall go no more out. And this is stressing permanence and stability with God. And keep in mind that these people, they would often have to leave the city when earthquakes struck. But the idea is there'll be no such instability in heaven. The verse then continues it speaks of writing names. Christ promises that the overcomers, that he will write upon him the name of my God. Okay, that depicts ownership, signifying that all true Christians belong to God. And it also speaks of an intimate personal relationship that we will have with God forever. Christ also promises to write on believers the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. So Christians have eternal citizenship in heaven's capital city, the new Jerusalem. That's described at length in Revelation 21. And this is yet another promise of security, safety, and glory. And then Christ promises believers his new name. And this name signifies identification, character, ownership, and recognition. Okay, and this is all offered to believers. There are many great and glorious things in store for us. And these gracious provisions were to motivate the church at Philadelphia to continue on, for them to be faithful. And it's designed to have the same impact on us at Condal Park. There are many great and precious promises given to this faithful church. Jesus will greatly reward commitment to him. Now, two lessons that I would like to draw out from the church at Philadelphia. Number one, the measure of success. Okay, the measure of success. How do we know if a church is successful? How would you answer that question? Okay, well, what, what does success look like in a church to you? Now, from this church, we learn how Jesus measures success. But there's an awful lot said today about success in the church, and usually it's measured by numbers. Numbers of people, number in the bank, number of ministries, number of pastors, number of buildings, number of supposed converts. And some of these things, although not wrong, they're not the key measure of success. Or what is? When Jesus speaks glowingly of this church, and he identifies them as having little strength. Which means externally they were not that impressive. So they failed the measure of success if it's purely about numbers. They didn't have the largest congregation. They didn't have the most programs. They didn't have the flashiest buildings. What did they have? Well, they were faithful. They were faithful. They were faithful to God's word, they were faithful to Christ. They loved the Bible. They loved Jesus. They loved each other. And they loved to share the gospel. And it was this that made them successful in God's view. So for us as a church. And for us as individuals. Faithfulness is the measure of success with Jesus. Faithfulness is what he's looking for. That is what he desires. So for us corporately. We may not have the most impressive building. We may not have the most members. Our budget may be quite small compared to others. We may not be able to offer the ministries and programs that other churches do. But we can be faithful. We can love Jesus. We can love the Bible. We can love each other. And it's this that Jesus is looking for. This is what he desires. And this is the type of church that he will use. And this also applies to us as individuals. You may not be as talented or as gifted as some others. Your spiritual gifts and your perception may may, may seem not as fancy as someone else's. You may not have that much money to give to God's work. In fact, you may feel like you don't have that much to give at all, but my friend, please be encouraged. It's faithfulness that Jesus desires. And you can be faithful. Be faithful in attending church. Be faithful in praying with your church. Be faithful in serving in church. Be faithful in sharing the gospel. Be faithful in loving others. Okay, well, whatever you are able to do, do it for the glory of God. This is what Jesus wants from you. You know, he's not expecting you to do something that you're not able to do. Okay, you know, it's it's not like he calls you to to be the next evangelist but doesn't gift you to preach. No, he's not like that. What he wants from you is faithful commitment to him, and everyone can do that. That's the measurement of success. Remember what Jesus says, you know, that the words get well done by what? Good and faithful servant. And by his grace this is something we can all do faithfulness is the measure of success the second thing that we learn from this church is that the healthy church will be mission minded okay the church that pleases jesus will take the great commission seriously they will be involved in missions supporting missionaries sending missionaries this will be the passion of a healthy church a couple of quotes Any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. Another writer said, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we become. Now, this church at Philadelphia, they cared about missions and were used greatly in accomplishing the missionary endeavor. And this needs to be something that we're passionate about at Condor Park may we be a great commission church and i believe there are some things that we do quite well in this area okay we do support missionaries in prayer and giving and that's wonderful may that continue but may we be looking to grow and expand both here and abroad may we as individuals be looking For opportunities to share the gospel in our community. As a church, corporately, may we be looking to expand our missionary support base. May we be thinking about sending out our own missionaries. I think that is an area where we can work on. May we be thinking about church plants in Australia. Sending missionaries both here and overseas. Because that is the mark of a healthy and thriving church. And we serve a missionary-minded God, and he wants his church to be mission-minded. So there are two churches, two very different churches, Sardis and Philadelphia. Out of these two churches, which one most characterizes our church? Well, to make it more personal, which of these churches characterizes you. Because please understand your spiritual condition affects the church. Because a church can only die if the individual members die. And a church can only be healthy if the individual members are healthy. So the health and effectiveness of a church corporately is governed by the individual members. And this reminds us that your spiritual health, okay, if it's not what it ought to be, understand that impacts others. It affects everyone in this room. It affects everyone in our church. So where are you at? Are you like Sardis? You're dying. Perhaps you've always been dead you've never known christ as your lord and savior it's just all a facade to know what this is my biggest fear as a pastor that someone will sit in church their whole life and yet they will never embrace christ as savior you know i trust there's no one here tonight like that because if you are spiritually dead that's going to impact the church why not come to christ tonight because that's how you get made alive Or maybe you are a Christian, but you're just not where you used to be. You're spiritually sick. Why not make that right tonight? Because remember, your spiritual sickness, it affects the whole church. Or are you like Philadelphia? Sure, you may not be the most gifted or most talented, but you love the Lord. And you desire to serve Him faithfully or committed to Him I trust that's you because that's the type of person that God loves to use and if our church is made up of members like this then he can use us mightily for his glory my friend where where are you at in your spiritual life remembering that your condition doesn't just impact you I really want us to understand that it impacts everyone in our church you know one military general once said one man can lose me a battle And one corrupt or disobedient Christian can lose a battle for the entire church. Your spiritual decline or your spiritual progress positively, it impacts everyone. We need to understand our life is a corporate life. And our ability as a church to be used by the Lord hinges on the health of the individual members. And hence, may we all be concerned about our spiritual health, because it doesn't just impact you, it impacts the whole church. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Amen. I do thank you uh, for, for these letters to the church of Sardis and to the church of Philadelphia. Um, Lord, there, there's much here for us uh, to process, and there, there's a message for everyone here tonight. So please help us to not only hear uh, your word, but please help us to be doers, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite Paul to lead us in the singing of our final hymn.